All right. Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have a forum where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to sports med, athlete rehab, and performance. To join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. This podcast can also be found on our website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. I'm joined by Jared Maynard who is the Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Director and Coordinator and a physiotherapist at King Physiotherapy and Foot Clinic in Ontario, Canada. He's also a certified strength and conditioning specialist and runs an online powerlifting coaching company and is a competitive powerlifter himself. What's up, Jared? Not much, man. Having a good day. Excited to be here. Just living the living the dream. Always. I hear you. And we're Honored to welcome to the show John Kiley, who is a researcher at the University of Central Lancashire in the UK. Uh, he is also a coach and consultant for teams and athletes at, of all levels, and he's written some classic pieces on stress, training structure, and the like. One of his pieces from last year was titled Periodization Theory Confronting an Inconvenient Truth. We're extremely excited to have you on the show, John. Thanks for being here. Uh, thanks very much for, for getting me along, guys. Pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, that's quite an introduction. I think it's going to be downhill from here. Okay, perfect. Well, we only have six listeners, so don't feel too much pressure. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, yeah, but it, it's truly an honor. Can you tell us and our six listeners what, what's led you to your current research tracks, to your current interest in the field? What's what's a little bit of background on yourself? And ultimately, of course, what's led to the pinnacle of your professional career, which is being on the Clinical Athlete Podcast? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I guess, although I work for university now as a so-called pseudo-academic, uh, really all my life I've just been embedded in in sports and training cultures uh, as a as, as a kid, uh, my background was in combat sports, started off martial arts. I was a, a kickboxer for quite a few years, national champion, a couple of international titles, uh, transitioned to boxing in my 20s, national champion a couple of times in, in, here in Ireland uh, and kind of, yeah, got beaten up around the world for four or five years, um, which was both a horrible and a good experience, a great experience. Uh, I was been coaching since I was maybe 22, 23. When I was 26, local university here, University of Limerick, started a sports science degree. I was looking for something to throw my energies into. I did that. I was already, you know, I had a few years coaching under my belt. I uh, did that. Uh, so I was kind of a sports science student and an international competitor and a coach simultaneously. Long story short, got out of that job. Uh, oh, sorry. Graduated, got a job working with uh, elite athletes within the Irish system. Went to the Paralympics in Athens in 2004, coached a medal winner. 
was at a Paralympic event in Finland in 2005. Uh, got approached about a potential job coming up in the UK, went for that, got that. Ended up going to the Beijing Olympics uh, as lead strength and conditioning coach for UK Athletics. So I worked with UK Athletics on a number of really, really great athletes, a um, number of medalists, mostly jumpers, sprinters. Uh, did a couple of years working with Mo Farah. So just really great quality of athletes and lots of different experiences uh, over those few years. Around 2012, just coming up to the London Games, was looking for a way back home. Old story, partner back here, locked into a job, me over in the UK, trying to have a relationship and commute over and back. So, yeah, essentially, I'm, I now work for a university in the UK, but I'm talking to you from my back kitchen in rural Ireland at the moment. And I, I, I pop over and back between rural Ireland and the UK. Uh, and I've, with the university, I work, we do a professional doctorate track, which is really for kind of mid-career professionals, uh, all kinds of everything, S&C coaches, technical coaches, sports scientists, uh, physios, for example, all, all kinds of everything. And they're interested in significant CPD in terms of a doctorate, but maybe are not specifically focused on working at a university. So they want to drive innovation. So we do that. We put it on a doctorate track and they get a professional doctorate in elite performance out the back end of it. So although I'm not fully immersed and embedded in practice, I work with people who are all the time. Um, I guess just to finish off, I'm, what got me to where I am, uh, I do contract out quite a bit uh, to, to practical contexts. So 20, uh, 2013, I worked with a really good athlete, Laura Massaro. She won the world squash title that year. 14, 15, 16, I worked with Irish rugby for in-competition phases. Uh, and it was primarily with players who were really good, really experienced, but had a number of injuries. And if you've any experience of rugby, that's pretty much everyone. <laughs> it's a pretty rough sport at the moment. So, you know, great education there, great athletes, really, really challenging sport to be in at the moment. I uh, worked the Rugby World Cup 2015 with, with the Irish squad. Uh, and then this year, or sorry, last year, I worked the Football World Cup with Egypt uh, in Russia. Again, same deal. You're just dropped in there, pre-competition camp and competition. And it's just all hands on deck. Some conditioning, some fitness stuff, some speed work, some some all kinds of everything, some rehab, some, some bits of everything. So... Uh, that wasn't the, the short summary, but but broadly, that's where I am at the moment. No, that was great. And that's one awesome thing about you is that your background has, you have so much time in the trenches. And one thing that you're also known for is being somewhat critical of dogmatic training 
paradigms or some of the periodization models. Um, and we want to kind of dive into that in your recent piece or more recent opinion piece that I referenced earlier. You mentioned that a lot of the periodization models that most people are familiar with were born out of the classical stress theory. It was basically how to manage stress. And you also talk, have talked in the past about how stress theory has evolved over the past 100, 150 years or 70 years at least, you know, started in kind of 1936 was that, that first paper. But the training paradigms have not really evolved with the new information that we've gotten on stress. So can you walk us through the classical model of stress theory, how it was proposed decades ago, and how that originally shaped training paradigms at that time? Yeah. Um, okay. So obviously, it's a it's a it's a long and complex story, and sometimes I kind of get a little pissed off when people beat up on the past. And and that's not what I'm doing. Uh, I'm not saying we're more intelligent now or we have greater insight now, but we have more information now and we have better measuring sticks to evaluate ideas. So to your question, if I put myself in the position of a coach in kind of 1940s, 1950s, when sport went through a kind of a ramping up phase where it went from the preserve of eccentrics nearly to um, to, to becoming more mainstream and uh, a type of pursuit that uh, countries often took pride in. And it just became more important in our culture. If you were an athlete then or a coach then, there wasn't really any guidelines that you could grab onto that would help you solve this really complex problem. How do I get this competitor athlete from here from this level of performance to this much higher level of performance within a, an abbreviated time frame. How do I do that? And there was very, very little information for people to draw on. So I think what the early theorists did was sensibly, they looked at science and thought, well, what can we take from science? And there was this concept of stress um, that had been growing, I guess, since the late 19th century of people were just awakening to the recognition that um, if you work in a job, for example, where you're exposed to severe physical stress on an ongoing basis, that has consequences. It diminishes you in some way. It wears you down. Um, and I guess this was most brought to the fore by the researcher Hans Selye. Again, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, primarily is when he did most of his work, but uh, he didn't die until the, the, the early to mid 80s. But he, he constructed, and it, this was all based on rat models. So, so basically what Selye did is he got rats and he was pretty mean to them for prolonged periods, and then he sacrificed the rats and he ground up parts of their brain, 
and weighed them. That was the measuring stick he was working with. Has this gland got heavier? And what does that mean? So when you think of it in that context, it's not a surprise that that stress theory has moved on. But basically, uh, Celia's breakthrough was, you know what? Uh, if you physically stress rats, there is a physical consequence over time. And that's predictable. If you stress them a little bit, you don't really get those uh, detrimental effects. You get some improvement. But if you stress them too much, too long, there starts to be wear and tear and uh, progressive breakdown. So what coaches did was they locked onto this and thought, well, you know what, that's that's relevant to the problem, this really big complex problem that I'm struggling to figure out. And what and then they extrapolate backwards, they said, well, what this is teaching me is if I apply progressive gradual physical stress, then this athlete will get better. If I apply too much, the athlete will start to break down or there will be excessive wear and tear leading to neg negative outcomes. And I guess what, what struck me is that it seems to be a law. If you go to periodization college, it's like you write a periodization piece, you have to reference Selye. But if you look at Selye's work, that's pretty much all it said. It said the very, what seems just a, like a face valid observation. Hey, you do a bit of work, you get better. You do too much work, you break down. That's what it said. I think what periodization, the early periodization theorists did was they used that, what I would consider, well, that's kind of a common sense observation, but they used that to add a degree of scienciness, scientific validation for periodization theory. Uh, am I making sense so far? Totally. Okay. Um, now, I think there was another major influence on periodization theory. So, so far, we have Selye and apply a stress. Here's what happens. Apply too much. Here's what happens. Um, and there was all a kind of a, a, a nomenclature that grew up around that, you know, uh, positive adaptation, stress, use stress, uh, general adaptation syndrome. And again, it all gives a veneer of scienciness, of scientific validation to this. But there was something that was totally non-scientific that was also a kind of an ever-present shaping influence. And that was our early 20th century cultural paradigm for planning. So if I was, if I owned a factory in the first part of the 20th century, how did I plan? And planning approaches were typified by this very... Um, systematic, rigid approach. So basically, if I want to get from X to Y, I break it into regimented sequential blocks and I string them together. And that's common sense. Uh, and again, uh, in, in that first periodization piece I wrote, I, I talked about Frederick Winslow Taylor. 
you know, and the principle of scientific management. And this was in the early 20th century. You get a stopwatch, you time your workers, you change constraints and see if they get more efficient under certain conditions. But it was very much a very uh, kind of, uh, what would you call it, kind of retro, retro engineered, if we do this first, then we do this, then we do this, very linear, very mechanistic, very uh, face valid, logical. But that was how we planned. So you put together, well, we have this veneer of scienceiness with this concept of stress and don't do too much, don't do too little. Makes a lot of common sense. And then we had this cultural backdrop, which was suggesting line everything up in a nice mechanistic row here and you will get to where you want to go. And obviously there are truths to both of those in certain contexts. If you are subjected to stress and it is excessive, there will be some detrimental outcome over time. Similarly, if you were work, if you were working on a simple engineering project, then that very regimented, segmented approach makes a lot of sense and will get you your end product. Uh, and that was a type of environment where certainly Frederick Winslow Taylor worked with small machine shop type environments. And that paradigm worked perfectly. I think the cultural mistake we made was, well, we have our scienceiness, but we also have this framework kind of imprinted in the back of our mind that this is how you should plan. We put the two of them, those together and, and periodization fell out the bottom. And if you look at conventional periodization, it was all about this is the one best way. This is what you need to do. And then it was taking that exact principle that worked in a machine shop in a very simplistic type problem and you apply it to what is a very complex system and assume it works and if it doesn't work well I will the athletes it was some fault on the athletes side or you try and force uh your yeah let me see what I'm trying to say here yeah basically you all understand this. If you have a lens and you look at the world through that lens, everything you see is in, interpreted through that. And so it's very hard to criticize a worldview from within that worldview. Does that make sense? Completely. Yeah. So I guess what you need to do, and, and a lot of the arguments in periodization, if you go to the, the 80s and 90s and early 2000s were about well, that's not the one best way. This is the one best way. This study did this and it was better than that. So it's better in all contexts. Um, and it was those kind of arguments. And if there's one thing that, uh, if there's one thing that really kind of bugged me about periodization, um, it was, it seemed to be more about personalities than logic. And the personalities were all coming out of the old Soviet Union. And we all doffed our hat to the old Soviet Union because they won X amount of medals in X amount of Olympic Games and so on. And so it was it was Matviev. Uh, 
And then there was Verkoshansky and Matviev died. And Verkoshansky beats up and Matviev after he's dead. And then he dies. And then Isurin comes and beats up in the two of them. And it just seemed like your typical old boys club fighting with one another for superiority. And it's my idea. It's my product that's better than his product. And it just seemed like nearly everything that's bad in uh, 21st century culture, you know, old white males fighting for dominance. It's about to say you remind me of the Industrial Revolution, but with training. <laughs> Sounds uh, like the, the Carnegies going after each other back yeah, in the day. You know, and I, I often think of it in terms of, for example, um, military tactics historically. You go back to you know, the 18th century and we're all going to get together in a square and we're all going to shoot at that square versus fast forward to, you know, now when it's all these, you know, semi-autonomous, uh, self-regulated, some decision-making at multiple different levels, probing for weakness and then capitalizing when when some opportunity is is presented or just emerges. Um, so that mightn't be a good example. In my head, it makes sense. Very regimented. This is what will happen. We'll shoot all the bad guys over here and then they'll go there and you're trying to predict the future. Whereas now it's much more, you know what? This is a complex mess here. How can we get a... How can we put processes in place where solutions can emerge in response to what's happening in the real world. I feel well, like I've said a lot there. <laughs> yeah, it was it was fantastic. By the way, for the for everyone and the listeners, John Flagg has joined us. And hey, on the it's funny because <laughs> nice on to my meet you, John. John and John, John and John. On my Skype, John Flagg, your video is frozen. I don't know if it's frozen oh. for either of you guys oh no no oh, so on, on my no. end it's just him like holding something to his face like a, a, a can or something it's pretty funny it's but, a monster okay well welcome john good to have you uh good so to be here. yeah so guess guess john john kylie that was a fantastic rundown and it it sounds like so you know old periodization models i think we assume that they had a science and and evidence to back them but there wasn't a, a ton of actual evidence showing effectiveness of of one periodization block or or paradigm versus another versus another. It was it was like you said, kind of expert opinion. Like this one works better because our athletes do this, and I'm who I am. And it makes sense on paper. You know, you you accumulate, you transmutate, and you realize you have these distinct phases, and you can plan out a sixteen weeks to the T on paper and it sounds like what you're saying is that's not necessarily what happens in the real world when you have an athlete who's facing multiple stressors that compete with the training stressor so my next question to you is what have we learned about stress and the factors that affect stress that weren't taken into account with Selye's work, for example, where he wasn't really trying to factor in everything from a biopsychosocial approach. He was looking at stress physiology, change in physiology, these types of things. But what now do we know? What factors really affect the athlete as a whole? 
So, um, I guess the, the first thing to say is it sounds like I'm beating up on Celia, but again, retrospectively, it's easy because he was he was weighing rodent glands to come to his conclusions, <laughs> you know. And so he he obviously he was a giant in the field, but I think what. The, What's commonly acknowledged as the biggest oversight in Celia's body of work now is that he did not see psycho-emotional stress. He saw that as distinct to physical stress in, in the sense that I don't think rodents are known for their complex emotional lives. Um, I, I, and I don't know how you'd pick up on their, uh, for example, individual anxiety through weighing their glands or anything like that. But I think from probably the 50s on, what became, and certainly in, in in, from psych, a psychologist or social psychologist perspective, they were running on a slightly different track and, and they were looking at psychological stress and how it impacted physiological outcomes. And, and Sally really neglected that. He felt physical stress, physical outcome. Psychological stress is something different. That that happens, you know, that's above the neck. That that doesn't necessarily apply to us. Now, I think his view was a bit more nuanced than that. But from a training perspective, culturally, we took what we wanted from that message. And that was, as a coach, I don't need to worry about that stuff. What will get the athlete to this level of performance is what is written on my page here. And the master plan that I devised that says, you know, this amount of running at this pace for, you know, this frequency or this amount of weight lifted or that amount of sprints or whatever it is. So I think uh, as coaches, we... in a sense, did a very human thing and imagined that controlling the athlete's performance level was in our control and I could control it from my back kitchen with my blank piece of paper devising my master plan. Uh, and I think there was a bit of that. There was a bit of ego-centricity in the whole thing. Um, now, as a qualifier to that, there were some brilliant coaches back then who clearly coached on a much more intuitive, responsive way and, and involved athletes in the decision-making process and educated their athletes and were nearly um, philosophical leaders or educators of their athletes but they didn't really leave a written record that we read culturally. What we read instead was this ex-Soviet theorist wrote this from the Soviet Union. There's some science in it. It must make sense. Intuitively it does because it has all this very um, determined, this is how we plan, rigid, structured, boom, boom, boom. So it must make sense. And yeah, in a sense, I kind of think of it like, you know, the fable or the story, the emperor's new clothes. I kind of think of it like that. It was this illusion that we bought into 
because we wanted to buy into because it presented us with a logical solution to a complex problem that was kind of bending our brains in ways we didn't want it to go. I can understand the sorry, Quinn. I can understand the desire for that concept though, because treating the human body like a machine and simplifying it and trying to bring out a process is very appealing. And unfortunately it just doesn't work out all the time because there's so much unpredictability with the psychosocial aspect of performance and just human interaction. So I can understand the appeal as to why it was so attractive at the time, but you can build a car like that. You can't build an athlete. No, absolutely. Um, And I think that, I think the great coaches always knew that. And they, and it's very interesting to look at periodization theory as it was, let's say, up until maybe 2010 or a little later, all dominated by these single authority figures telling you what's what, telling you this is the way, the truth and the light, and actually my way is better than his way. Um, And they were all male, all ex-Soviets, and I think capitalising on that, uh, what would you say, reverence that we held culturally for that culture um, from a sports perspective. Um, but there's a really interesting thing, and, and I've noticed, like, I've, I've been around the block a couple of times, uh, and I, I think I know some great coaches. I've worked with, by anyone's standards, would be great coaches, as, as in multiple medals in Olympic and world level. And obviously, me being me, I talk to them about periodization. And I've heard a number of times, well, I follow Verkoshansky. Well, I actually follow this guy. Um, And one time, by a coach who has had multiple gold medals, I follow Matviev. This was an older coach who had read Matviev back in the 80s. But then when... You know, when you're working with them, you're actually looking at the program and what's happening on a day-to-day basis. You're thinking, these programs are all pretty much the same. You're you're rationalizing them differently. But what you're doing isn't what you're doing isn't different. So I think what you had is you had a disconnect between here's the theory as promoted by the the, the notable theorists. And then coaches were breaking that down, making practical sense of it. How do I apply this? And they were pretty much ending up with the same product, but thinking it was something different. And it always reminds me of, you've seen the film The Life of Brian, I I presume, I hope. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Do you remember that scene, um, follow the shoe, and then no, no, follow the gourd, and everyone is kind of breaking off into their own sex. That's the way I think of what happened in periodization over the course of the 90s and early 2000s. We've now, got a little bit of that in, in our fields yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. Do you, now, I know what you're not saying, because I've heard you speak on this before, is it that you're not saying training shouldn't be planned or structured to some extent. Because I think people, you know, some people hear about this, they're like, oh, periodization doesn't have as much evidence 
behind it as I thought. So I can just go into the gym and do whatever I want now. Or my, as a coach, I can just have on the fly, you know, write up the athletes workout for today and have no plan going forward. But that's not what you're saying. Can you make the distinction between a training plan that is structured versus one that's periodized? Because I think there's a distinction there. No, and listen, uh, thanks for that question, because that brings me back on track, because I, I sidestepped uh, an element of that question earlier. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm certainly not saying you don't need to plan, you don't need to program. Similarly, I'm not saying that you have to have this really complex decision-making tree uh, that takes lots of time and lots of brain space. Um, I guess what I am saying is that if we look at the evidence periodization, evidence that is cited as supporting periodization is pretty much evidence supporting variation in training, which is something that's different. Variation in training just means you don't do the same thing all the time, whereas periodization comes, it's a loaded term and it's loaded with you need specific blocks. And most of the major theorists suggested there's a certain duration for that block. Then they suggested that it takes X amount of weeks to, you know, to, to um, improve this capacity. So whole loads of things that we now know very dramatically on an inter-individual level, they were making these very crude, and normally it was with a veneer of scienceiness, but it was really broken down. We'll plan on the basis a microcycle is a week, um, a macrocycle is a month. You know, it just conveniently seemed to fall into those uh, portions of time that that culturally we we all that resonate with all of us. But when you look at the how they how they supported those claims. They pretty much all used different scientific rationalizations to arrive at the same conclusions. Four weeks is the best time for a uh, mesocycle, for example. Um, so I feel like I'm after going off track here a little bit again. Okay, so the, the, just in terms of the science periodization was mostly the science of variation. There, ha there were, have been some studies, uh, a, a number of studies that have concluded that, well, actually, you don't need periodization, or sorry, you don't need variation. But those studies are characterized by participants who had a low initial level of fitness or strength or whatever your metric was. And I guess to me, that doesn't prove you don't need variation. It just proves that if you're at a low level, it's easy to get some momentum behind you. If you're at a high level, yeah, we need to be a lot cleverer. So stepping back again into, I guess, the, 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 the deep core of your question, do we need a plan? Yes, we do. Absolutely, we do. Both for practical reasons. The athlete needs to know what session they're coming to do. They need to have that head on. Is this a hard session? Is it an easy session? Is it a technical session? Is it, you know, is it a recovery session? They need to know what they're coming to do and they need to come prepared to hit that session. Um, 
we also need to know things like, well, what kit do I need? You know, what prep do I need to do? We need a plan. The problem is we can't advance plan very accurately. That's the delusion that we've suffered under, that I can tell you what training you will need in three weeks' time. Now, I think... For me, what the new planning becomes is, okay, we need a framework, but can we put processes in place so that as we're working through this training program, the outputs of those processes inform the training that we will do in the future? So, for example, a process could be, a process could be, Here's our plan. Here's our framework. Here's what we are going to do. I'm going to talk to the athlete. I'm going to check how they recovered from the last session. Is there any problems? Um, you know, maybe three, four questions. And based on that, okay, well, let's go through what, what we plan to do. Yes, yes, yes. Maybe we'll skip that for today because you're still feeling a little bit on, on your left hammer. So that's out. You know, so basically, is there some way that you can corral information in a, in a really quick way that can inform training, that can keep you on track, then periodically, and it could be every week, I do five minutes with the athlete and we plan forward. Or we recalibrate next week's plan on the basis of the information we got this week or something like that. And I feel like I've kind of fumbled over that explanation, but to, to kind of summarize it, for me, I think there's a very small tweak here. I think it's a small tweak that's necessary, and it's not a small tweak that you would be aware of if you just read the periodization literature. Because the periodization literature, it never tells us how we should use information or athlete feedback to inform future training. It always assumes that we can future plan with precision. And there's sometimes there's this one sentence qualifier, uh, but of course you have to be prepared to change if, if change becomes necessary. But that's just a get out of jail card. Yeah. You know, for me, it's always more precise to change as we go. So I don't have to make drastic change when the athlete gets injured in six weeks time. So, so I'm not sure if that makes sense there. No, it, it does. It, it sounds like one of the major flaws with a regimented, periodized plan is the assumption that we are good at prediction, that we are accurate predictors over time. And we are not, as been shown in, in many cases, not just not just training, but we also just can't for we're we're this dynamic system. One of the terms that you use in your uh, periodization piece, the, the recent one from early 2018, was the term allostasis rather than homeostasis, where homeostasis is we assume that we have this static set point. We stress enough to disrupt homeostasis, and then we find a new set point, and then it's just kind of you know over and over. But allostasis maybe reflects more reality where we establish stability through constant change and constant tinkering, which sounds like it's kind of what you're describing, 
where we have this range, you have a plan, you, you know the direction that you're going to go, but you have flexibility to go either direction in any given moment based on, based on inputs and maybe, you know, small predictive outputs. Maybe we can predict on the day to day, but we can't predict 12 weeks out. Would that be a, a fair way to describe how a coach should or, or a clinician? Because clinicians actually, I think resonate, this resonates with them even more because we're in such a non homeostatic environment. The clinic is moving very fast. The athlete, their presentation is changing on the day to day via injury, pain, these types of things. So would you say for a coach clinician, establish your framework, but always have a plan plan B to fall back on? Um, I'll tell you where my thinking is on this. Um, and like what I've struggled with is uh, I, I work in a certain environment. Um, you know, I work, you work with elite athletes, you have testing equipment, you have a lot of contact time. And it's very open to, for the criticism. Well, you have time with athletes. These are full timers. You can talk to them. You know, you can change your plans. But I work with 40 university athletes in the same time in the gym. And I guess what my thinking at the moment is, is as you said, we, we, we get a framework. I think there's a, so that's the first layer of planning. The second layer of planning for me is, now, what information gathering processes can I put in place that can provide relevant information to base changes to change, or sorry, that can um, underpin decisions to change? So, for example, what that could be is uh, if you're working with a high level individual athlete, you might have some testing kit there, you do some readiness assessment, or you could do some subjective questionnaires or you could just develop a relationship in a shared language. So you're the elite athlete. I have explained to you the purpose of this information gathering that changing training isn't a bad thing. It's a necessary and good thing. Uh, and you're on board with that. So we have this kind of dialogue and that's fine for the elite athlete, one-on-one -on -one perspective. How do you do that if you're working with 40 university-level athletes? Well, you have to accept that I can't do that perfectly. I can't get the same level of precision, but can I get more precision than if I was just giving them this six-week plan? And the answer is obviously yes. Um, and it can be everyone needs to answer these three questions or something like that, or score how they feel out of one to ten, or score their fatigue for, you know, from the last session, or anything at all that can give you a little bit more information. And then you can have nearly automated decisions coming off that. If X, then Y. So if, if you got a lot of uh, knee pain when we did this plyometric exercise last week, you need to come and talk to me before the session for two minutes. I will make a decision on what we do today. If you didn't crack on, you do what we did last week. So basically, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I think that it's worth fighting for any increase in prescription fidelity, any increase in accuracy, any, any way that you can diminish 
inappropriate training, the amount of inappropriate training, and therefore diminish injury risk slightly over time. So I think there's, you set the plan, the framework, then you design the processes. How can I most get information from the athlete so that we can then make an informed decision? If there's a lot of athletes, I need to automate that. And that leads to the third element of planning for me, which is this uh, the education element. I need to explain to these athletes, here's what we're doing, here's why we're doing it. This can be time efficient. It can be 30 minutes at the start of, this, of the phase, 30 minutes, six weeks later. And I think what you do then is explain to the athletes, here's what we're doing, here's why we're doing this, here's why we're collecting this information. But you need to be educated. You need to. We need to have a shared language. Uh, you need to come to me if you are concerned about X, Y, or Z. Here's when you come to me. You know, before warm up or five minutes after warm up or before we do this or whatever it is. But you get processes in place. You automate those processes. The the scenario you're aiming for is over time. You have a framework that allows flexibility in it. You have processes that are automated that start filling in that detail accurately as you go along. And then you have a progressive education of athletes in terms of when you come in week one, I'm not giving you any decision-making autonomy really. But as you get more educated, I'm giving you more and more autonomy. And we're having, it's less coaches dictator which it might have to be here. And it's moving towards coaches sounding board down the line. Um, and and I, that's where my thought at, is at. And, and I can't think of, it needs to be practical. It's one thing to write in journals about, oh, it's very complex and blah, 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 blah. You can't have 40 minute conversations for a 30 minute training session. It needs to be, you know what? I got to accept that this isn't going to be perfect. But how can I make it slightly better? Tomorrow I make it slightly better again. And again, I think it's framework, design the process, educate the athlete. Boom, we're up and running. With I think that's really pertinent with what we talk about a lot in the rehab world with creating self-efficacy with patients. And it's exactly what you're explaining with your athletes is you start with a framework that has more structure and then they explore that framework a little bit and they get some more experience with you as a coach or with a cl as a clinician they start to answer questions together you bring the athlete as part of the process or the patient in as part of the process and then they start to drive the training process based off some of the feedback that they give you like coach i feel like crap today you know i'm, I'm just i'm not feeling it last time this happened we did A, B, and C and skip D. Is that what you want me to do? And that's a super quick conversation that they can help kind of drive that, that whole thing home. And I've been there with 40 athletes in a room. You can't talk to every person for 10 minutes. Sure. You know, if you can get those quick ones and you have people who've been in the program for a while and understand very quickly the modification, and they just run it off you, then that's, that's where we want to be. But we want to be that way clinically as well. That's what we talk about a lot in the rehab world right now. Well, how different is what you've described there to what you would have believed if you just read the periodization papers? You would oh, think that well, this, is, this is me. I tell the athlete does and all will be good. Um, 
There's one other thing I'd say, and that is, um, Quinn, you mentioned stress. So there's there's getting these physical parameters, okay, you know, are nailed on or, and getting your processes in place and educating the athletes so they're given informed information to you so you can spin it back in, in an informed way. But there's also... If that's happening, then the athlete and they're educating themselves, they're becoming, they're buying into the process more. And that, to me, is absolute gold. If what you want is a motivated athlete that has faith in the program, that has faith in you, that trusts you, that know you have their back, in essence, their expectation of being better is being amplified by you and the way you communicate with them and your environment and the way you've shaped the environment and their their relationships with other, you know, squad members or team members or medical staff or whatever it is. Uh, and in a sense, I think that one of the things you could criticise the sports science literature for and certainly the strength and condition literature it's kind of a repeat of Celia's mistake. It's that physical is physical. Um, and absolutely it is not. I, and again, you know, I've worked with a lot of elite coaches and then I've worked with a lot of very, very, what you could consider academic, very intellectual, mm, uh, meticulous, precise coaches. And sometimes you see successful coaches that they just don't worry about detail. They don't know squat technique, but that's okay. They don't need to, but I've, so you've coaches of all different flavors, but I've never, ever seen what we would class as a great coach in terms of multiple major medalists who didn't inspire trust and faith and didn't have good dialogue with the athlete. I have never come across that. And I think, Really what we're talking about here, in a sense, at least the way I'm thinking about it at the moment is as a clinician, as a coach, as a sports science provider, this may sound weird now, but you are effectively an agent of placebo. You are someone who can raise expectation and you do, whether you want to or not, you either raise it or diminish it by every interaction you have with the athlete. So the question that I ask myself is, am I presenting in a way that is uh, amplifying the athlete's trust, confidence, expectation, or in a way that is diminishing that? And is my program acting in a way that is raising expectation and confidence and faith in your ability or diminishing that? And I think that We've all, certainly in my field, we've all been looking at the programming, the technique, the best exercise for this, the best microcycle for this. And we've forgotten about, hey, you know what? This athlete needs to trust this and buy into this. And and, and I am the worst in the world for it. I'm, you know, I, I put a lot of effort into being meticulous around exercise design. But past few years, I'm thinking, you know what? I don't know if that's important. I think the important thing is the athlete believes and trusts. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> should I leave now? 
<laughs> no, no, you're good. Um, you hit it on the on the head there, John. I was I was going to bring it up if you hadn't said it. Is the importance of creating this buy-in and illustrating your plan for achieving the outcomes that that you and the athlete both share, um, but also letting them know that that not only do these channels of communication exist, but that you value them as the coach, and that you're going to be seeking out their feedback regularly so that you collectively as a team can make these these adjustments and in clinic it's the same thing where um well i've, I've heard it uh, said before that we're walking placebos like it or not and i think there are certainly um lots of common elements that uh, are going to carry over into virtually every um patient clinician or coach athlete interaction in terms of professionalism confidence empathy, these sorts of things. And then there's probably some added nuance in terms of um, interacting with this particular person, maybe based on their disposition or their personality, they might respond a little bit better to someone who's, uh, or or might respond a little bit better to us if we're speaking a little bit slowly or a little bit more soft-spoken or something compared to someone else who might be a little bit more high energy and, um, I don't know, just might have a better response if we in turn have a bit more spring in our step step so to speak so that's i don't know probably a little bit difficult but requires some uh, some reading of the person that you're interacting with but it remains important well i i'd absolutely agree with that and i guess it's not easily answered so what's my approach do i want to be a chameleon that changes based on my judgment of what the, this individual in front of me me uh, needs or do I just do I be consistent? Uh, and I think I think th- my answer to that question when I've kind of asked myself that question is I can't be somebody else well. <laughs> I can only be me well. But if I am me, you know, if I try and be a, a comedian or try and integrate myself through something, that's not really who I am. But what I can be is consistent and reliable and show up to training and, you know, and, and effectively now what I do, if I'm going to do a session, I am I have a routine to get myself in the right place. I didn't have that five, ten years ago. And it could be that I would carry the stress of the day in with me or the anxiety of the day in with me. And I didn't have a, I need to clear this out now and, and, and get zoomed in. But now I have that and I... I get the athletes to do the same. So you're sitting in traffic for two hours. Your kid was up all night. You're fighting with your partner. We need to get rid of that stuff before we start our warm up. So you need space to clear the decks here. Uh, remind yourself of why we're here and how what we do today is going to help you get to where you want to go. We need to make all those links. I think as uh doesn't necessarily have to be overtly, but uh, subtly and quickly so that we know that this athlete is hitting this session in reliably, broadly the same emotional state on a regular basis. What we can't afford to do, what I think is wasted training or worse, dangerous training, is if I'm hitting a session and some days I'm, I'm way too low and some days I'm just riddled with anxiety for whatever reason. That's going to totally compromise any adaptations you get. And 
modulate injury risk. So we need to take control of that. But what we've done conventionally is here's the program, do it. Here's the program, but it's your responsibility. You need to arrive here in the right space. If not, you need to flag it. And this is the intervention we'll use to get you in the right space. Then we'll remind you of what we want to achieve here, what your goals are related to where you want to go in the future. So again, there's that buy-in and then and then churn through. Um, and, you know, we, we talked about the stress thing, and, and I do think a lot in terms of, we've mentioned the word placebo, but for me, all placebo is, is it is a, a change in our neural environment brought about by a change in how we think. Specifically, a change in our perceived ability to handle whatever challenge is coming at us. Something has changed in the environment and I've noticed it. And now I am more convinced that I'm better able to cope with whatever the, the challenge ahead of me is. So, and obviously those, any kind of change in neural environment will drive downstream biochemical changes and we're different. And training is overlaid on a different environment. And so the adaptations that we make are subsequently different. So I think it doesn't matter if if you're coming back from injury or um, if you're trying to recover from a hard session or any of those things that the stress management is important and our expectations are important. And they're both things that we as clinicians or coaches can influence positively. And for me, they are aspects of planning. We need to plan for that. But again, getting back to where we jumped into this, it falls outside of how we have conventionally looked at planning. A practical question for you along those lines, because we have so many athletes that come from that pretty strict periodization and they have this expectation that a lot of progress is linear. How do you go about educating those individual athletes on the ebbs and flows of training, the unpredictability and uncertainty in regards to results of training, the adaptations. You can go, especially in our sports, at barbell sports, you can go a year without seeing substantial progress. And it leads to a lot of frustration athlete, with each athlete. How do you go about changing that mindset and getting them to kind of embrace the uncertainty that is training? Um, I mean, it's a really good question. And it, I mean, again, you could look at it from I'm working with one individual elite athlete. I'm working with a group of 40 university athletes. I think the basic approach for me either way would be the same. And that would be I give some educational input. We know clear, like uh, along the lines of we know clearly that if we give 40 of you the same strength training program, you will respond. The responses, individual responses will be all over the map. Some of you will not improve substantially. Some of you will improve massively. What we need to do as a group with a shared mission is let's put something in place, be it a, a periodic review or, a, you know, some ongoing assessments. So let's judge who's responding well and who's not. And if you're not, let's change what you're doing. If you are, let's keep it there until those uh, improvements taper off. So again, 
I guess what, what I'm suggesting is that we'd introduce some level of appropriate control. And by appropriate, I mean, it doesn't have to be really detailed. It can be whatever works for your scenario. That is just starting to inform us about is, is trainer X improving? No. Okay. What do we need to do? Okay. Well, sometimes it might be we need to push the intensity. Sometimes it needs to, we need to change the direction. Let's come at this from a different approach. Let's try some different exercises and then come back to this. But, uh, but that would be my approach. And again, I think it would be an approach that would have to be scalable in terms of I'm working with one elite with lots of time. I'm working with 40 with barely any time. With the 40, it might be, uh, I'm, I'm up at the front with a, with a, you know, a flip chart. And here's what it is. Five minutes. Boom. That's the only time I can take from their session. Five minutes critical education. The next session, I'm going to dump another five minutes on. And gradually that's going to accrue. They're going to become more understanding of uh, our expectations and what we're going to do. Hopefully it will offset the problem you highlighted, highlighted, which is a motivated athlete feeling despair that they're not actually getting better despite all this effort. And again, the kind of the hidden undercurrent is that this guy has my back. This guy cares about this process is in place to work for me. And it might not work now, but we're going to refine it. We're going to make it better. Now, it's not the ideal scenario. The ideal scenario is if you could stand in front of a group and say, you will get X amount better in four weeks' time or in six weeks' time, but that's not reality. And people will lose faith in you. And you can't afford to be wrong too many times before an athlete starts looking at you and going, you're full of crap. And then you are screwed. Regardless of how good your program is, if you have lost faith or if the athlete has lost faith, then my perception is that's a huge deal and it's hard to get back. So I don't know if I went off topic there, but. Uh, that was great. One question that I was going to ask for coming from a devil's advocate standpoint, but I, at this point you've answered it, I think, and, and was going to be what if the athlete knows that if they tell you that something hurts or if they tell you that they're fatigued today, they know that you will say, oh, okay, let's pull back a little bit. How do you balance? And But they, maybe they feel great. They just don't want to work hard. I think the the obvious rebuttal would be if you have athletes that are lying to you, you've got bigger problems <laughs> than just uh, you know worrying about their training for the day-to-day. -day. There's something wrong there in the athlete-coach-clinician-athlete relationship. There's a trust issue there, period, that needs to be addressed. But how do you balance knowing that for for performance or even for rehab to to make adaptations favorably we have to we have to push thresholds but we don't want to do not too too little because we won't have adaptation but we know that if we push 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 we may, may also have issues so is there a balance there when an athlete tells you oh, i feel a little beat up i feel a little tired today where some days you might actually say we need to we need to push through today a little bit or we'll we'll go ahead and pull back is that a challenge no, that is a thank you for that because that was an oversight on my part and you've, you have to remind me of it. So in no way, I think it would be incorrect to paint this as a kind of a softly, softly approach. Well, how are you feeling? 
some days you're feeling crap, tough, because today's the day we have our takeout session, or this is where we're doing our high intensity stuff. It could be an Olympic final and you, you wake up and you don't feel well. What, what are you going to do then? You're going to sort yourself out and dig in and get on with it. And this is today is a day where you can trial that. We don't want to do hard sessions when you feel like hard sessions. You want to do some percentage of hard sessions when you don't feel like hard sessions. I guess what we need to do is there isn't a clear right or wrong. It's just be aware. If I'm going to do a real takeout session, risks are up. How can I mitigate those risks? Okay. If the athlete, for example, is clearly washed out, um, then is the risk too much? If yes, then maybe we'll make a change. Uh, is the athlete, do I feel the athlete is just swinging the lead a little bit? Uh, that's a really tough one. And I'll say, I'll, I'll tell you why it's a really tough one. I've been present at a number of sessions where elite athletes, Olympic years, and the, the coach is just pissed off with them. You know, or the coach is in a bad mood. And the, the coach's mood is changing their decision-making. So that kind of reset process, that I need to clear away the crap of the day, the coach doesn't have a process like that in place. So they arrive at, session, at a session and their emotions are dependent on what's happening for the rest of the day or what's going on in their life, which for me is, that's not professional. You've got to separate all that crap from, boom, I'm here to do this job. I'm just a service provider. And that leads to, or another example, this athlete is just annoying me. He keeps telling shit jokes or whatever. He supports the wrong football team or whatever it is. And I am angry with them. And so I'm going to come down on them. And I've seen that happen and people just blow up. You know, Achilles pop. You know, the athletes, oh, I don't think I can do it. You're too soft. Do it. You know, season gone, Olympic cycle down the tube. I've seen that happen. And again, it's misplaced emotion. Bad feeling towards a specific athlete influencing your decisions around what that athlete should do. So back to your question. Sorry, I kind of segued there. Um, in, yeah, this isn't softly, softly. This is sensible. <laughs> we need to be sensible. But it's not sensible if we never push hard. Because what's going to happen when you compete? You are not going to be resilient. We need to expose you to the pinnacle of stress that you're likely to experience. But we're not going to just do it the first day of training. We're going to gradually build the bridges. We're going to have these stepping stones. We know you have that capacity. And then we're going to touch on it in a regular basis. So we know you're resilient. And part of resilient is being able to do that when you feel like crap and not feel sorry for yourself. So how do we get the athlete to not feel sorry for themselves? Well, it's, you know, it's a pretty basic two-pronged approach, I think. I expose you to those hard training sessions on a regular basis, but it's gradual and it's incremental. So it's not an extreme stress at any juncture. And the second thing is you as the athlete or you and me as coach and athlete, we need to develop a process 
that allows you to go from, oh, geez, I don't really don't want to do that, feeling sorry for yourself, to this is an opportunity for me to reprogram what's going on in my head right now, to, you know, change my physical warm-up so I'm in the right place, so I can hit this session hard. So I would see that type of scenario where the athlete isn't feeling it. That's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to, here's where you employ your processes, change your self-talk, change your warm-up, whatever we need to do as part of our ritual for these scenarios to get you into, from to, to get you from this suppressed state to this state where you're just going to, you're nailed on, you're ready to go. I think How one reason that why that, no, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was fantastic. I think one reason why it's such a hard question to answer is without context, you know, you have to know the athlete and their personality. Is this somebody, is this somebody who wouldn't, they're, they're, they're a good, they're a good person. You know, they, you know, this, this athlete wouldn't lie to you. If they're saying they're beat up and they're run down, that's one thing, but you've got this other athlete who may be a little bit different. And, and so you, you just have to take it by the individual and also probably trends over time. If, is this a one-off where the athlete's telling me that they feel a certain way, or has this been a continuing trend maybe over the past seven to 10 days, you've been observing their performance dip and they're also telling you that they feel a certain way that, that is cooperating with what you see. And that's can maybe inform your decisions as well. So like you said, you've got to take, what are you seeing from the athlete? What are you hearing from the athlete? And you take everything else into context to make a decision. And I love the practical advice. Sometimes it's just change your warm up a little bit. Let's, let's take a few more reps here before we ramp up. Like, cause we've all walked into the gym feeling like dog shit. And then that training session ends up being great. And had we, had we just, and, and vice versa, obviously too, but had we, you know, just got on how we felt as soon as we woke up, we'd be like, I ain't going to the gym today. Um, so it, it, it's just such a complex interplay that I think you elucidated very, very well. Well, what I'd say is, I think what we should do is, or what the athlete, we need to do with the athlete is develop a ritual for the athlete. And what I mean by ritual is, and again, I guess you could look at this through the placebo lens. Um, if you take a placebo pill, it is not as effective as uh, an injectable placebo, for example. Why? Well, there's a there's a symbolic relevance here. Um, that might be a good example, but but I, I guess the advantage of having a ritual with the athlete is as they go through their steps that they know that there's some self-talk there is, this is what I do. Doesn't matter how I feel, this is what I do. And once I go through these steps, this is where I end up. And I am ready for, I'm, I'm ready to go once I hit here. So it's embedding a ritual that the athlete has faith in. And in this scenario that we're talking about, it's, um, let's say the athlete isn't feeling it, but you have a competition or a hard session to get through. We know what to do. I'm going to add on a few minutes to the warm-up. Uh, maybe before I start the warm-up, I'm going to have a two, two, two minutes quiet time to just calm, start myself talk, start getting myself up. Then I'll do the warm-up. Maybe I'll add a couple of more aggressive elements at the back end of the warm-up. But all the time what it's doing is sensible interventions that should help, but also the athlete can just plug in to an habituated process 
that they feel or know or expect from prior experience doesn't matter how I'm feeling now. Now is not important. It's where I am at the end of this warm-up that's important. And if I go through these steps, prior experience tells me that that's where I'll be. So I don't need to worry about this. And that kind of brings us back to the stress thing. If you, I think the best way that we can help athletes or uh, patients or whatever to alleviate stress is have trust in yourself, have trust in your process, that we have evolved over time and trialed and practiced in the heat of battle and has worked for you before. And if we can get that in place, then you can just dial into that and everything becomes automated and it's it's everything. It's the physical actions are giving you a message. Your thoughts are giving you a message. Your your historical expectations of how this will work, it's all giving you a positive message. Um, did I hit that question or did I miss a part? Absolutely. No, that, that goes back to what you're talking about, you being consistent as well, because the athlete comes in with a set expectation of your response and it's already, the groundwork's already laid. Yeah, Instead absolutely. of being a chameleon, like you had said before, you, if you're consistent, it sets that groundwork up. Yeah. It's great stuff. I, that's where my thinking is anyways. It's, I, I can't, for me personally, and obviously if this is how I've thought about it, I haven't thought about it, well, how could I write a paper about this? It was, how can I make myself a better coach? And uh, I can't be a, a comedian or, you know, I, I, there's certain things I can't do, so I can just be me, but I can be consistent. So the athlete shows up and I'm not depressed one day and then manic the next day. And they're thinking, what coach is this? It's just consistency. And I think that consistency also goes for how we how we greet the athlete, our first couple of questions. So in my head, the athlete might not be aware, but I'll have a list of three to five questions. Boom, boom, boom. I'll ask them in different ways every session, get the, what I think, critically, critical information. So there's a consistency there. There might be, a, there will always be a briefing stage that might just be 40 seconds or it might be three minutes, it might be one athlete or it might be 20 athletes, but there'll always be that. Here's what we're here to do. Are we all in the right place? If not, process. If yes, crack on. And I think of course, the important part of training is doing the physical work. But there's also believing in the physical work. And there's also being in the right neurobiological state to do that work. And I think we have completely ignored or undervalued or not been aware of the value of ritual and habit and this is what I do. This is my process. We've totally undervalued the worth of that in, in all of, of our environments. I think that's where my head is at at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good place. Well, we're coming, we could talk about this stuff all day. Uh, we're, we're coming up on, I know your time limit. So you want to be respectful of that. John, first of all, thanks so much for being on the show. This was awesome. This is thank you very much. Really, I really, really enjoyed great. the conversation. What's coming down the pipeline for you, uh, professionally, research tracks, anything you, any new writings that you, you got coming in the future? And then also where can people find you and, and connect with you and learn more about you? Um, well, writing wise, I'm, I'm, 
I'm knocking out some coordination stuff at the moment to, that uh, I've been thinking about for quite a while, so I'm doing some of that. And unsurprisingly, I guess, because of some of the things I've said in this conversation, I, I'm writing a placebo piece as well. Now, I say I'm writing. I'm probably two and a half years into writing it. <laughs> yeah. So it's currently at 11,000 words and has to shrink down to 3,000 words. So it is the reverse of of actually writing it's more vomiting my thoughts onto a page and then trying to make sense out of them um, writing is probably a bit of a uh, an overstatement but hopefully in this lifetime that will turn into a paper well you know some journals have the if you have captions on pictures or diagrams, the, the words and the captions don't count towards the, the word count of the entire paper. So you can just maybe fit like five more thousand words into a caption of a picture or something. Well, yeah, it'll turn out like a cartoon, like a comic, but that sounds like yeah. a good idea to get the idea across. <laughs> well, um, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just thinking oh. I, I, I missed part of your question. Um, Where can people find you? Yeah. Um, I have an Instagram account, but I've, I, I'm very rarely on it. Uh, I don't think I'm on it at all, really. Um, uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Simply Sports Sci. Uh, I have a ResearchGate page if anyone wants to read any of the papers I've I've written or been involved in. Uh, and that's pretty much it. So the ResearchGate, just for the listeners, and you should know this, but you can just Google, like you could Google your the title of your uh, recent periodization paper, periodization theory conf uh, confronting an in inconvenient truth, ResearchGate. It'll pop right up on ResearchGate, and then you can click on John's name, and you can follow John. And so every new publication that comes out that goes on ResearchGate will pop right into your email. And what's awesome about a lot of your papers, John, is that I would say most of them, or at least the ones that I have, are open access. The the periodization pieces, a, a ton of the stress pieces, and and uh, coordination and running. They're, they're free to, to download for everyone. Yeah, well, I, you know, I try and make them op uh, open access wherever possible. Uh, and I guess because I work in a university, that works okay because they're happy to pay for it. If I was a private citizen, it would be a lot harder. But yeah. Will you come back on the show? Because we didn't even get to coordination. That was going to be one of our talking <laughs> points. But I, I wanted to save it uh, when some of these papers start coming out or you know or or whatever get you back on the show and talk about that well i'd love to i enjoyed the conversation today and thanks very much for having me absolutely uh thanks so much Appreciate john and, and thanks yeah thanks everybody for listening <laughs>